Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. This episode is part of a special series supported by the British Academy on human rights and the sustainable development goals. Today I'm talking to Sandy Fredman, a professor of law at Oxford University, about how human rights and the sustainable development goals can work together on issues of gender equality. The United Nations adopted the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015. They aim to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all people. The Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, provide policy objectives for countries to aspire to meet over a number of years. In this final episode of our SDG podcast series, we're going to talk about how the Sustainable Development Goals and human rights can work together to achieve transformative change in the realm of gender equality. In order for the SDGs to be truly transformative for women, attention needs to be paid simultaneously to four dimensions of equality. First, redressing disadvantage. Second, addressing stereotyping, stigma, prejudice, and violence. Third, facilitating voice and participation. And fourth, achieving systemic or institutional change. I'm here with Professor Sandy Fredman, who is going to talk about how and why human rights and the SDGs can inform one another on these multiple dimensions of equality. Sandy recently wrote a report for the British Academy on the SDGs and gender equality, which you can find on the Oxford Human Rights Hub website or on the British Academy website. Thank you so much, Sandy, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Kira, for taking the time to talk with me. So at this point in your career, you're well known for your work on labor law, gender and equality, and how these fields intersect. What kinds of issues were you working on in those areas at the beginning of your career? And what issues interest you now? So growing up in South Africa, in the height of apartheid, what was very striking was the absence of human rights and the very deep inequalities, both because of institutionalized racism and because of economic inequality. But it was also a very patriarchal society and my own community was very patriarchal. So I've always been seen law and the work that lawyers do as being essentially concerned with furthering social justice and particularly because of my experience of acute injustice, I've always seen lawyers as having a responsibility to tackle breaches of human rights and breaches of equality. Uh, And because of my own experience of patriarchy, gender equality and race equality were very central to that. Have your interests or have the issues that you focus on changed at all over the course of your career? Do you find yourself more or less working on the on the same issues? Well, when I first came to the UK, there was there was no Bill of Rights, there was no Human Rights Act. And instead, the main focus was on achieving rights through political activism. And this was particularly true in the labor field, where the idea the, the central guiding principle was that trade unions through their collective bargaining should secure rights for workers. 
So in a sense, the reason my earlier career was very much involved with labor law and labor relations was because that was the only arena actually in the UK where social rights were at the forefront. But very soon after I came to the UK, the government, which was the Thatcher government, started to enact repressive legislation against trade unions. And at the same time, it became very clear that trade unions didn't necessarily further the interests of women. And that made it clear that political activity and collective activity was not sufficient to secure human rights. That some kind of a constitutional or quasi-constitutional protection was necessary. So my early work was involved in labour law. Uh, discrimination law in the UK grew up through labour law. And in more recent decades, there's been more of a shift both in the UK and more generally in my work, I guess, to seeing uh, rights at work and social rights as human rights, very much involved with gender equality. So let's transition a little bit to talking about the report that you've just put together for the British Academy on the Sustainable Development Goals and Human Rights. Uh, the project itself is called Working Together, Human Rights and the Sustainable Development Goals. Could you tell me a little bit about how this project came about? What was the motivation behind it? Well, in 2015, the world came together and agreed uh, a set of extremely ambitious goals that by 2030, the world would be transformed. No one would be left behind. Poverty would be eradicated. Gender equality would be achieved. And this, in the very bleak times which we seem to be living in, seemed an extraordinary moment of hope and energy and commitment which I thought needed to be capitalised on by those who were not necessarily working in the development field. And at the same time, for the first time, the Sustainable Development Goals incorporated a reference to human rights. So this seemed a really important moment to bring together the work that's being done internationally in gender equality on human rights and the promises of the Sustainable Development Goals so that when the period of the Sustainable Development Goals lapses in 2030, we will be able to say we did our best to bring these promises to fruition and we wouldn't land up in the same position as with the predecessors to the Sustainable Development Goals, the Millennium Development Goals, which fell far short of the promises that, that they had set up. The idea of the report was to see to what extent we could make use of human rights and the existing quite well-established structure of human rights to make sure that those promises are achieved or as close to being achieved as possible. So how do the UN Sustainable Development Goals fit into the broad global movement for gender equality? What do they contribute? What do they say about gender equality? On the face of it, they are transformative and very progressive. The Sustainable Development Goal 5 is the one which says that it will achieve gender equality um, and empower women and girls everywhere by 2030. And it has some very progressive 
targets within the development goal, for example, that um, unpaid caring work should be properly recognized and valued, which is something well beyond what the human rights framework has achieved thus far. It makes a commitment to reducing maternal mortality by nearly two-thirds to making sexual and reproductive health rights available to everyone, to getting rid of gender-based violence and forced marriage and, and other practices, harmful practices like uh, FGM. So on the face of it is very progressive and in that sense it could contribute a lot to the existing human rights framework. But the problem is that development goals are generally measured through collection of data and are generally measured in aggregate terms. And that means that these highly nuanced, rich goals need to be reduced to measurable goals, creating the, the risk, which I think has partly already materialized, of stripping away these very transformative potentials and reducing them to measurable goals which are actually much more limited than a human rights lawyer would hope for. As you mentioned, the SDGs do make a commitment to forward human rights, which was an improvement over the Millennium Development Goals. But is there a difference between how the SDGs and human rights law, for instance, define gender equality? One of the main differences between human rights generally and the SDGs generally is that human rights focus on the individual. So it sees the individual as a subject of rights rather than, as I said, the sustainable development goals which look at aggregate outcomes. That means that one of the ways in which the human rights framework on gender equality improves on or is better than the SDGs is that the risk of seeing women as instruments of development are much reduced. The whole purpose of human rights is to see people as ends in themselves and not as means to ends. So that is one issue which the human rights framework brings to buttress the development goals. The, there has also been a lot of work done by feminists within the human rights framework, particularly the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, to move beyond a very simple idea of gender equality, which would say that women need to be treated the same as men, and instead to look at how the institutions and structures of society act to obstruct women's full participation in society. So that is still a work in progress, but it's a work in progress which is could usefully also be applied to the Sustainable Development Goals. And I should say in the other direction, because actually the goals that I mentioned are in some ways more progressive than what's already in the Human Rights Framework, but there is space for them to be used to complement and buttress each other. So in what ways are the SDGs more progressive than human rights frameworks? I think there are two things. The one is that 
it expressly recognizes the way in which caring work affects women's position in society, the way in which women can interact with the paid workforce, the way in which women's role in the family works. Whereas this has only been brought into the human rights framework through interpretation and through gradual progressive development of human rights. So I think that's one of the most important steps forward or extras that the SDGs bring. The other is in relation to poverty. So clearly a centerpiece of development goals is addressing poverty and the, the 2030 agenda, which is the, the SDGs, puts uh, eliminating poverty right at the heart of that agenda. Human rights have not really ever seen themselves centrally as addressing poverty. And that's because human rights are often framed as protecting individuals against the state interfering with their liberty, whereas poverty is seen as natural, something either caused by your own laziness or indolence or inability or lack of talent, or by natural causes rather than by the state. So it's only very recently that there's been attention paid to seeing poverty as being the responsibility of the state in a human rights framework. And even then it's very attenuated. So the SDGs do address poverty, but what neither the SDGs nor the human rights framework properly do is address what I would call gendered poverty, which is the particular way in which women experience poverty. So you mentioned that a goal of the SDGs should be substantive equality. Can you tell me a little bit about what substantive equality consists of and how it differs from just equality in general? The very basic idea that most people associate with equality is to treat likes alike, or to say that it's wrong to treat someone differently just because of an irrelevant characteristic like their gender or their race. So the aim of that idea, which I call formal equality, is to strip away these irrelevant characteristics such as gender or race and treat the individual as purely on their merit. But the experience of women has shown that this is a, a, a very limited understanding of equality even though women might have, on the face of it, equal rights to men, that hasn't actually changed the deep inequalities that women experience. So it's been necessary for feminists to try to develop a more substantive view of equality. So the, the, the first step in that is to recognise that equality shouldn't mean same treatment. Equality might require different treatment when there is antecedent disadvantage and that means that at the, f the first stage or what I call the first dimension should be focused on redressing the specific disadvantage experienced by women. That means that women might not necessarily need to be treated the same as men in order to achieve equality. It could mean for example we need um, different treatment in order for women to participate equally. But that's not in itself enough because a lot of the issues around inequality for women 
arises from stigma, stereotyping, prejudice and violence against women, which is what I call the second dimension, the recognition dimension. And those two dimensions are very closely related. So women's work is generally undervalued in the market because it can be done unpaid at home. Domestic work, childcare, catering, cleaning is often the poorest paid work in the market. So the stereotyping of women as doing women's work spills over into the market into disadvantage. So the second dimension, which is a recognition dimension, can materially affect women's prospects in the paid labour market. And also women's caring responsibilities mean that their ability to participate fully in the labour market is truncated and that they are much more exposed to pre precarious work by balancing caring work and paid work. The other thing about the second dimension is that it requires a focus on stereotyping women as sexual objects which also feeds into violence against women which again affects how they can operate and their uh, inequality. Uh, the third dimension focuses on the extent to which women have a voice in decisions which affect them. The, this is really crucial because many policies on equality don't take into account women's perspective, but it's also a complex dimension because we have to be sure that the people who are really speaking for women are speaking for all women and that all the diverse social locations of differently situated women are taken into account. And the fourth dimension, which is the structural or transformative dimension, requires a focus on the social and institutional and structural issues which function as impediments to women's equality. So this means that inequality isn't necessarily a result of individual prejudice or animus towards women. It can be built into the way in which society operates. An example is the best rewarded work is work which is full-time, permanent and lasts throughout your life, whereas women, because of their caring responsibilities, often have precarious work, part-time work, take have to take time off work and that affects their pay their pensions their ability to be independent which in turn could make them much more dependent on on marriage on a, a male partner or any other partner or family to support them and so on so my understanding of transformative equality requires attention to be paid to all of those four simultaneously so that a deep and transformative version of equality can be achieved. So one theme that has emerged throughout this podcast series that we've been doing on the SDGs and human rights is that the SDGs are basically political goals that are sort of softer, non-binding, while human rights, by contrast, are firmer, binding legal obligations. 
So are the SDGs and human rights law speaking to completely different audiences? Are they even sort of talking about the same thing? This theme that has emerged raises a lot of questions, I think, about how the SDGs and human rights law can practically work together when they seem to be speaking to different listeners. So that's a difficult question. If states prefer to talk about sustainable development goals for the only reason that they are less binding, then that's worrying, given that actually the main international human rights instruments have been widely ratified, which means that these very states have already accepted that they've got these legally binding obligations. Particularly the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, is the most widely ratified convention. And by ratifying it, states have accepted that they have certain obligations to further gender equality. So I would prefer to say that these existing obligations, which they have accepted, are buttressed and buttress the promises that states also made in relation to development goals than to say that states should be permitted to turn to development goals to say that these are promises which need not be kept. Actually, on the world stage, international human rights law, while we call it binding, is also very much dependent on political commitment and on their persuasive value. The international monitoring bodies for the international human rights uh, treaties really only have the power to make recommendations to states and therefore they too depend on their persuasive power to achieve cooperation from states. So I think it's a better way forward to say both the SDGs and binding human rights should work together as strongly persuasive possibilities for states to follow and that we should see this as a cooperative enterprise rather than as an adversarial or uh, an enterprise which states should be hostile towards. So in the report, you explore gender equality from the perspective of human rights and the SDGs respectively through some specific issues. Uh, so one of those issues is sexual and reproductive health, and the other issue is gender and poverty. Why did you choose those two issues in particular? So there are two reasons that I chose them. One is both issues are so crucial. Sexual and reproductive health rights are perhaps not properly recognized as central to the way forward, particularly maternal mortality. Maternal mortality is very easily prevented so the first reason that I've chosen sexual and reproductive health rights was because this shocking level of deaths among women as a daily occurrence needs to be stopped. Poverty is also crucial to women. Women are the majority of the, the poorest people in the world. And poverty among women differs from poverty among everyone because Added to it are the particular gendered power relations, women's primary responsibility for caring and childcare, which 
require very specific attention rather than generalized. So that's the first reason. That is the crucial importance of both these issues for women. And the second reason is to highlight some of the contrasts between human rights and the SDGs. So the human rights, particularly CEDAW, have been quite recently quite advanced on questions of sexual and reproductive health rights, whereas the SDGs lag behind. On the other hand, the SDGs are further advanced than the human rights framework on poverty issues, although, as I said before, neither of them is really addresses gendered poverty. So working together could mean that we take the strengths of each of those and adding them together create a synergy which is better than the sum of the parts. How do the SDGs deal with sexual and reproductive health issues? So, for instance, where, where do those particular issues appear in the SDGs and how do the SDGs suggest measuring them? On the surface, the SDGs make very ambitious and very positive promises in relation to sexual and reproductive health rights. SDG 5, which is the on gender equality, as one of its targets, promises to reduce maternal mortality by two-thirds by 2030, and it also promises to make sexual and reproductive health rights available to everyone. The difficulty with it is how it's measured. The goals don't really talk about means to ends. They only talk about measuring. And the way in which they measure it is availability of skilled birth assistance, which is an important measure in itself, but isn't sufficient for a human rights from a human rights perspective, which is disappointing because the Millennium Development Goals had the same indicator and it was hoped that by the injection of a human rights approach into the reproductive health rights field, more qualitative indications of progress would be made. So one tension between the SDGs and human rights law is on the monitoring and reporting mechanisms. So can you tell me a little bit about what's different in the way that human rights would measure, let's say, sexual and reproductive health rights versus the way that the SDGs measure and monitor uh, those targets? Well, one of the disappointments of the Sustainable Development Goals was that it was hoped that there would be clearer mechanisms for compliance and accountability, similar, more similar to the way in which international human rights are monitored. Unfortunately, though, the Sustainable Development Goals rely entirely on voluntary compliance and it's voluntary and state-led. And the way they do it is through what's called indicators. That is, they require, they ask states voluntarily to collect certain data and to show that the data are improving under the particular indicators. So they are required for maternal mortality to collect statistics on whether maternal mortality is decreasing in an aggregate sense. But what it doesn't do is to require states to put in place particular measures which will achieve that for all women and all women regardless of their social location. The difference between that and the international monitoring of the human rights is that 
states are required under international law to provide periodic reports, that is every four years or so, to the seed or committee or the other relevant monitoring body, stating what measures they've put in place to fulfill the rights to which they've committed themselves to. And that requires a much more nuanced description of what they've done in terms of policies, individual measures, accountability mechanisms, and so on. So it sounds like one striking difference is that human rights reporting tends to require a much more qualitative perspective on the realization uh, and recognition of rights uh, versus the SDG approach, which maybe is inherently more quantitative in nature. That's right. But having said that, sometimes the quantitative approach is useful. And actually, the SDGs could give a useful extra perspective because they do give the global picture and they do require... Well, they if, if states voluntarily produce the reports which they should do, then they could complement the reporting to the UN treaty bodies by providing these extra statistics. So they would work well together if they could be brought together in a synergy. Okay, so let's turn to gender and poverty now, the other issue that you tackle in the Working Together report. If anything, the SDGs do take a particularly strong stance on poverty. So how do the SDGs do when it comes to dealing with the intersections between poverty and gender? One of the key issues for both the SDGs and the human rights approach is to recognise the nature of gendered poverty as being specific to gendered power relations in society and as being affected by the way in which women still have primary responsibility for childcare and domestic work and are also stereotyped in the sense of being subjected to harassment, gender-based violence, etc. So that's the frame in which I've looked at the SDGs to see the extent to which they made the gendered nature of poverty more visible and the extent to which the goals which they set can address the gender dimension of poverty. It's quite clear that the development goals are geared towards alleviation of poverty and they are very strong on that but they're not necessarily as strong on gender-based poverty. The, the first issue is simply to make it visible. Neither the SDGs nor the human rights structure makes it visible enough. But there are aspects of the SDGs which could be read in those terms if, if the various elements are put together. So SDG 1 is to eliminate poverty. Uh, Women form the majority of people living in extreme poverty. There is one aspect of SDGs which could take us into the realm of gendered poverty, which is that target 1.2 refers to poverty in all its dimensions according to national definitions this could mean that we could bring in the definition of multidimensional poverty which has been developed in various other fora which complements income-based poverty 
by considering other kinds of deprivation suffered by individuals, particularly in relation to health, education and standard of living. And these are aspects which, if properly developed within the SDGs, could bring in the particular issues in relation to women's poverty. So there are aspects of this multidimensional notion of poverty which could be used to make gender-based poverty more visible, but that's really up to activists and uh, NGOs to make sure that that indicator is properly used. If you could be uh, having this conversation with someone other than with me, uh, who would you want to be having this conversation with? Who needs to hear this particular perspective on the SDGs and human rights? So I think it would be everyone who is committed to furthering gender equality. Because the only way in which these very ambitious goals that the world has committed itself to can be achieved is through the energy, imagination, determination of a whole range of actors who are committed to gender equality. Civil society movements who can find in both the human rights framework and in the SDGs the resources around which to campaign, around which to mobilize their energies. Civil servants and policy makers who need to take their promises and their commitments seriously. And the UN monitoring bodies, particularly members of the CEDAW committee, who could then draw on the resources of both of these in order to make their recommendations to individual states robust and progressive and eventually transformative. So that ultimately, by 2030, we will say we have done everything we can to make these promises come true. Thank you so much, Sandy, for joining me for this conversation. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This special series on the Sustainable Development Goals is supported by the British Academy. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. Mm-hmm.